You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, good morning again. I have the very unique opportunity to both lead worship and preach the sermon today. All of our other worship leaders are either gone or were supposed to be gone. One came back last night um, unexpectedly. So I got the opportunity to do that, and God has said before time that I would be preaching this morning as well. So I get the pleasure of bringing you God's word today. Let's turn our hearts now to this word of God. Let me open us up in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity to come and praise you around the throne and just reflect on the rich truths in those songs, Lord God. You have done it all through, and it's been Christ working in us that has accomplished what it has. We thank you, God, for dying on the cross for us, coming back to life and being our great high priest. God, we pray now as we look into your word that we would be greatly enriched, edified, and helped in our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Friends, beware a restless heart. Beware a restless heart. Today, I get the privilege of entering into a journey in the book of Hebrews. We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, through the end of chapter 4 over the next few weeks. And it's a powerful, powerful section of Scripture. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This section of scripture really hits home fast, and it drives you and me to holiness, the holiness with, without, without none of us will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. We need great passages like these and great reminders. We need God-glorifying, sin-killing, Christ-exalting, joy-producing self examinations. Beware a restless heart. We are driving to the great passage at the end of chapter 4 about our great high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, who by his righteous life enables us to draw near to the throne of grace. Everything points ahead to that passage. But before we get there, we have some heart surgery to do first, to feel the full weight of Christ's preachhood priesthood. I've entitled our mini-series, Rest for the Restless. We'll be exploring the, the rest God offers, how to obtain it, and what that rest truly means. We'll see how it culminates in Christ, our great high priest, and how he alone provides that rest for us. But today we follow our text, beginning in Hebrews 3, 7, with a focus not on the rest, but on the restless. You and I must beware a restless heart. Now, there's a real thing out there called restless leg syndrome. I should know because I suffered from it for about three years in my late teens and early 20s. To quote Wikipedia, restless leg syndrome causes a strong urge to move one's legs. There is often an unpleasant feeling in the legs that improves somewhat by moving them. And this is often described as aching, tingling, or crawling in nature. End quote. This disorder is more common in females and in older folks, but obviously I broke that mold. And so for about three years, I could not keep my right leg in one position for more than about 20 minutes. 
And this was not typically a big deal for me, active young guy, except when I was driving a car a long distance. I recall one time when my dad was actually paying me to drive a refrigerator or maybe some other large appliance from the San Juan Islands, I believe it was, down to Tacoma. He's sitting in the audience so he can fact check anything I say. It's kind of annoying. I have to couch everything with, I think it was this. Um, I think it was from the San Juan Islands down to Tacoma. I had a tight deadline and could not afford to stop the car when restless leg syndrome struck. It attacked my right leg as it always did. I was in shoreline heading south and my leg was dying and aching, crawling with pain. And it was my right leg, as it always was. The leg that controls, you know, the gas and the brakes. And so desperate was I in this instance that I carefully moved my left leg onto the gas pedal and put my right leg up on the dashboard and drove for a while, right leg up, just to get rid of some of that pain. Beware a restless leg driver, I should say. Well, maybe you've never had a restless leg, but we all get restless hearts. And the heart of human beings get restless fast. They become tired, bored with the status quo. Our hearts long for something new, fresh, exciting, even willing to try dumb things to overcome tedium and normalcy. Our text today is about the heart that wanders from salvation. It's about the heart that is restless, losing interest in holiness and truth, ready to move away in dangerous ways, like the proverbial putting the right foot on the dashboard. But this text is not about salvation in general. Friends, it's about your salvation. It's about my salvation. This text is evangelistic to the core, toward you and toward me. We need a spiritual echocardiogram, a spiritual EKG this morning, and the author of Hebrews brings it in spades. We need to come face to face with the implications of the gospel. We need to learn from the failure of others to see what it truly means to be a Christian, to be saved and to enter the joy of God's rest. So I say again, beware a restless heart. Our text is Hebrews 3, 7 to 19. Let's go ahead and read it together. I presume you're already there. Hebrews 3, 7 to 19. Follow along as I read. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear this, his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
So reads God's precious and holy word, our text for today. Now before we can enter this text, let's get some helpful context regarding the book of Hebrews. We're just jumping in right here into the middle. First off, who wrote Hebrews? Well, shocking, but we don't know who the author is. It's not given to us. Some have speculated Paul, others Luke, Peter, some suggest even Apollos or Barnabas. The exact human author is actually unknown. But that is fitting because the work, this book, is to honor and exalt Christ. The ultimate author was the Holy Spirit, and we do know him personally. The exact audience is also unknown, though we can make some reasonable guesses here. It is very clear the letter is written to the Jewish Christians, Jewish Christians, hence the title, the letter to the Hebrews. The rich references to sacrifice and priesthoods and angels and Moses and Melchizedek with practically zero explanation of these things, make it exquisitely obvious that, the un, that this unknown author was writing to people of a Jewish heritage. No Greek or Roman Gentile would pick up what this author was putting down, but the Jewish Christians, they'd instantly be in the know. <clears throat> Most speculate that this letter, <clears throat> excuse me, was written to Jewish Christian, a Jewish Christian church that would have been first evangelized by the apostles on their early missionary trips. And a local body of Jewish Christians would certainly fit the context. The author specifically makes a statement at the end about how he's going to come visit them with Timothy. Again, another pointer, this is a local church body. Some speculate this is a local church in Albania or Greece, as there were good-sized Jewish populations there, and they're just uh, across the pond from Italy. And again, at the end of the letter, it says the Italian Christians send their greetings. So could be a small local church in that region, but these are just well-reasoned guesses. What is very clear is the Jewish nature of these believers, the Jewish background. So why did this unknown author write to this unknown group of Jews? What motivated such an amazing and timeless letter? It was apostasy apostasy or the growing threat of apostasy is what led this Holy Spirit-filled author to put pen to paper. And we see it again again in the letter. Again and again, the Holy Spirit charges the Jewish Christians to hold fast to the faith, cling to that faith, to not renege on what they had believed at first. You see, time had passed since their initial conversion. Romans, um, Romans were now persecuting them. And what was once fresh and exciting was now fearful and maybe not just that same palpable joy. Christianity was not a sanctioned religion by the Roman government, so persecution was real. Judaism, on the other hand, where they'd come out of, the Judaism, the Jews' religion, had been grandfathered in by the Romans, so to speak, when the Romans took over. So you could be a Jew openly in Rome or in, in all of Roman Empire. There was a recognized and approved religions. And so if these Jewish Christians would just slide back into their Judaism. The persecution would all go away. Further, we've got to realize that their own Jewish families had rejected them for following Jesus. They had been ostracized, put out of the, out of the family. Jewish converts to Christianity had lost out on the family bonds. They lost out on prosperous job opportunities that were, that were um, regular in the Jewish community. And they lost out on the community care and welfare that came with that. But all of that could be experienced again if a Jewish Christian would stop proclaiming Jesus and just slide back in, just slide back into their old religion, their old way of life. And that was happening. Or at the very least, it was a real threat. So much so that this letter was written, guided by the Holy Spirit, to admonish the early Christians to hold fast to their faith. Hold fast to their faith. 
And this book gives a compelling, compelling reason after reason why to do that. Why should they hold fast in the face of persecution and ostracism? And this book makes it so clear. It's because Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Everything that Jesus brings is better. Everything about Jesus is better than Judaism. And that's what this letter presents. Friends, in Christ, we have a better hope, a better testament, a better promise, a better sacrifice, a better substance, a better promised land, a better resurrection, a better everything. A better everything. And Jesus Christ is the supreme best. In Christ, everything is new. Everything is better. We don't need the old. So Jewish Christians, don't go back to the old. Jesus is better. That's the point of this letter to the Hebrews. Jesus is better. And the first two and a half chapters of this letter boldly proclaim this fact. And chapter three, we get into our chapter here, begins with Moses, another revered figure in Jewish history. And it proclaims too, Jesus is better than Moses. Look at Hebrews 3, 5, and 6, the two verses leading up to our text. Hebrews 3, 5, and 6, the conclusion of that reasoning. It says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Christ is better. And we, transition, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This middle of verse 6 marks a transition that carries the theme so far and transitions it to application for its hearers. Christ is better, now what do you do about that? You cling. You cling to him. You hold fast to your confidence. This is the clarion call of the letter. Hold fast to Christ. Do not forsake him for peace and security. Do not forsake him for the old way of life. Do not forsake him for something lesser. Christ is better. Cling to Christ. Beware a restless heart. That brings us finally to our text. And our text begins with a poignant illustration. A perfect example of what not to do. And this is point number one today, if you've got your outline there. Point number one, the failure of our fathers. The failure of our fathers. Glance back there at verses 7 through 11. When the Holy Spirit wants to make a point, he quotes himself. And so here he quotes scripture. And here in verses 7 to 11 is the second half of Psalm 95, quoted in full. If you recall back to our scripture reading that Hans read earlier, we read Psalm 95. The first half of that psalm is just glorious, exuberant praise. What we all should do is we come and worship and praise and bow down before this great God we serve. But the second half of that psalm is what's quoted here. And it is telling the Israelites, don't reject your God. The first half of the psalm exhorts us to worship. The second half exhorts us to not abandon him, as these forefathers did. We need to learn from their bonehead mistake of this wilderness generation. Well, what did they do? Look at Hebrews 3, 8, and 9. It says, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Like an ice cube in the freezer, these Israelites made their hearts hard against God. They tested him repeatedly. Well, what does it mean to harden your heart? It says don't harden your hearts. What does that mean? It is to disobey the voice of God and act in accordance with your own desires. To disobey the voice of God 
and act in accordance with your own desires. You see, the heart in Hebrew and Greek thought is far more than just the emotions, as we tend to think of the heart here in English. In Hebrew and Greek thought, the heart was the measure of a man. It was the motherboard, the headquarters, the pentagon of man's inner being. And it was from this heart that sprung the thoughts, the passions, the attentions, and motives. It is the essence of a person. And so to harden one's heart is not just an emotional rejection. It is whole person wickedness. As biblical counselor John Street puts it, your body will act in full cooperation with the dictates of your heart. So when the heart goes astray, the person goes astray. Turn over in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17 for a minute. We're going to look at this initial rebellion of the wilderness generation. And just three chapters before Exodus 17, they walked through the Red Sea by faith, following Moses there. In Exodus 15, they rightly praise God for that. And, but soon thereafter, even at the end of Exodus 15, they already start complaining about some bitter water that they've got. Then they complain about not having food. And God quickly solved those problems for them. And so when we come to chapter 17, really the inexcusable happens. They just go too far and put God to the test. There may be one, two, three weeks tops outside of the land of Egypt. And this is what happens. Exodus 17, I'll read two through four. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And you see, the Israelites' faith had evaporated already. They truly think they're going to die of thirst so much so they already hate their leader Moses and want to reject him and even stone him. But again, God is patient with them in their evil testing and he solves that problem with water from a rock. Now look down at verse seven, verse seven. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the, the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now there's two names there, Massah and Meribah. Those are important. They actually have great meaning in Hebrew. Massah means testing. Meribah means rebellion. And it was here that Israel began their testing and rebelling rebellion against Yahweh God. Psalm 95 that we read earlier picks that up specifically, saying, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness. That's Psalm 95. The author of Hebrews, however, uses the Greek meaning for those words. Instead of place names, he uses the meaning of the words, bringing to the forefront Israel's sin to his Greek-speaking Jewish readers. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Again, the focus is on the evil in their hearts. But Israel was not done rebellion, rebelling at Massah, at Meribah. They, they, they shortly thereafter, when it was time to enter the promised land and experience that rest from slavery, that rest from trouble, the people decided to send in spies to spy out the land. You know the story, 10 come back with a bad report, two come back with a good report, and they reject the two and hold fast to the 10 and disbelieve God's promise that he would bring them into this promised land. And so God punishes them for 40 years, as Hebrews 3, 9 points to. This rebellion on Canaan's doorstep is probably what's being pointed to here in, in verse 3, 9 of Hebrews, a different reference than Massah and Meribah, because they, they tested God again. 
And then for 40 more years, they would test God. They would try him. They would see his works and reject him. Think of it. These Israelites literally saw God at work. They witnessed the ten, the ten plagues. They walked through the Red Sea. They heard God speak audibly from the mountain, the Ten Commandments. And yet, they saw all these things, they examined them, they tried them, they tested them, as it says, and they rejected them. And they rejected the God of them. God gave them these visible signs. Friends, that should have given them such profound faith, a faith that would carry them through any days of doubt, any days of unknown. And yet, they did not continue. When the going got tough again, so did their hearts. They hardened their hearts. They disobeyed the voice of God and acted in accordance with their own desires. And as we know from history, as the Bible tells us, they paid dearly for their own sins. Look at Hebrews 3, 10 through 11. Here's God's response. Hebrews 3, 10 for 11. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. God's righteous indignation is aroused because of the waywardness of their restless hearts. Again, they should have known better. They'd seen God's miracles. They had his law. And yet, as verse 10 says, they have not known my ways. Now, that is not speaking of intellectual knowledge, but relational knowledge. They knew God's ways in their head, but they did not let God's ways direct their heart. They did not act upon what they had seen and heard. They neglected the all-important task of knowing and abiding in God's ways. May it not be the same for us. Such wickedness of heart provoked God greatly and caused him to take an oath. The oath that the Israelites shall not enter my rest. Rest. There it is. Rest from slavery. Rest from labor. Rest from war. Rest from futile efforts. The peace of rest. Everybody wants rest. Some of you are resting in this room right now. Just kidding. Actually, I don't see any closed eyes, so we're good. But hopefully, you come back. What rest are we talking about here? What rest will Israel not enter? When I think of my ideal rest, I picture a comfortable lawn chair in the grass, under the shade of a large tree, next to a picturesque lake, 81 degrees, Moe's Mocha milkshake in my right hand, some good book in my left hand, my wife sitting next to me, and my kids at the grandparents. <laughs> I think of earthly rest here and now. And I believe in the context of ancient Israel, after their exodus from Egypt, that earthly rest was part of the picture. The promised land was their place of rest, an earthly rest, rest with a land produced by itself, a land flowing with milk and honey. They may, may not have been dreaming of Moe's milkshakes back then, but they were dr probably dreaming of milk mixed with honey. They might have called it a Moses milkshake. <laughs> the promised land was the promise of rest. Rest from enemies, rest from hard labor. This was surely in mind for Israel when God took his oath, they shall not enter my rest. And they wandered the wilderness, generation, the wilderness for 40 years until they had all perished. 
But there is another rest, an eternal ongoing rest that is also absolutely, certainly in view in God's oath. We'll look at the rest in greater detail in chapter 4 next week, but take a sneak peek at Hebrews 4, 8. Hebrews 4, 8. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So we know this rest is not fulfilled in the promised land. Joshua couldn't give it to them. There is a rest that God speaks of. It's a culminating rest, an eternal rest, the spiritual rest of heaven, when we shall be freed from these bodies of sin and decay and experience the joy of the presence of God forevermore. This rest is in view in God's oath. God sentenced this rebellious generation to 40 years of wandering, never to taste the promised land rest, and that promised land is a sign, a portent of a heavenly land that we still await today. Rebellious Israel, friends, is in hell. They would face God's wrath and never know God's rest because of their unbelief. And my friend, until you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and walk with him by faith, you will not know anything about the joy of this promised land, the joy of this rest. You will have no rest today, and you will have no rest for all of eternity. There are many wilderness wanderers today wandering in a place of death, a place of unrest. It's an aimless life. It's a life of dissatisfaction. There are many people today, even church-going people, who do not know what God's rest is. They have never entered into it, and they will not enter into it. May that not be you today, friend. Soften your heart toward the Lord as we look at these next two verses. Verses 12 and 13. Look at verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And here we get point number two. Fight sin lest you also fall. Fight sin lest you also fall. Perhaps you've heard the tragic story of Joshua Harris. Once a prolific Christian book writer, an 11-year pastor of a megachurch in Maryland, a trip to joshharris.com today will take you to the same man, but one who is now a message clarity coach. One of his six stated areas where he can help you is if you are shifting in your beliefs and need to reinterpret your life story. There is nothing biblical or Christian anywhere on this site. And that's because Harris, to use his words, no longer identifies as a Christian. Have you heard of I Kiss Dating Goodbye? Joshua Harris wrote that. I personally don't recommend that book, but it was very popular when I was a teen. As a pastor, Harris wrote books like Why Church Matters, Discovering Your Place in the Family of God. He wrote Stop Dating the Church, Fall in Love with the Family of God. And he wrote Not Even a Hint, a book on purity for men. All good books. He raised a great family, and his sons, Alex and Brett Harris, even wrote their own well-acclaimed book, Do Hard Things. I took my junior hires through it when I was a youth pastor. It's a good book. But now, just two years ago this week, Joshua Harris divorced his wife, and what's worse, rejected Christianity and Christ. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. How could this happen? 
How could Joshua Harris, the man's man, the Christian leading Christians, walk away from the faith? And if a man like Harris could walk away, we must realize that hypothetically, hypothetically anyone could abandon the faith. And that's why the book of Hebrews was written. That's why we have warning passages like this one. The people of Israel who began well by painting the blood on the doorposts in faith, walking through the Red Sea in faith, ended miserably by rejecting the God they had every reason to believe. Same story with Josh Harris. What about you, friend? Did you begin a walk with Jesus with excitement and joy? Did you formerly walk with him closely and eagerly? And are you now today listless in your faith journey? Does sin not seem so bad? Perhaps a little here, a little there. You know Christ's mercy will forgive it all. Have you become restless in your faith? Has any deviation from your former, earlier, original faith occurred? The joy of salvation in Christ that once excited you, has it become commonplace? Even, dare I say, boring. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What does this mean? The command here is to take care, to discern, to watch out. The word means to look, to see with the eyes. I like how the NIV captures this in their translation. See to it, brothers. This is the biblical command. Watch your life. See to it, friends, that there be no evil, unbelieving heart in you. Evil in the Greek is the simple word for evil, panera. Unbelief is the simple word for belief or faith with the negative on the front. These are very easy words to understand. What leads us to fall away, to rebel against, to forsake the living God? It's one or both of these two things, wickedness of heart, unbelief in the heart. The Israelites, the Joshua Harishes, those who walk away from God, they don't set out one day and say, you know, I'm going to go forsake God today. They don't go that route. No, rather, over time, their hearts grow cold and restless. They find comfort in some form of evil. They lose full trust in the promises of God. And we can't always see what moves people, but mark God's words. The reason people reject Christ is a growing unrest with the promises of God and a move away from purity and righteousness. The end of verse 13 warns us that sin is deceitful, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful, friends. Sin pushes people to unbelief. Sin pushes people to unbelief. If you give in to sin and don't repent, it will harden your conscience. What at first seems so wrong now only seems a little bit wrong. And what seems only a little bit wrong now will soon not feel wrong at all. In his 20s, John MacArthur was in a car accident while traveling along a California freeway. This was before seatbelts were the norm. And in this collision, MacArthur was ejected from a car moving 75 miles an hour. It's amazing he lived. He slid on his back 100 yards down the freeway, suffering third-degree burns on his back from the friction with the asphalt. He had to lay on his stomach for months while those wounds healed. Today, MacArthur has a back covered in scars. If you tap him on the back, he will not feel you. If you poke him with a pin, he will not feel the prick. The scar tissue has rendered his back completely insensitive. And that is what sin does to your conscience. 
it scars you. It makes your conscience unable to feel like it once did. You then make bolder steps toward evil. And before you know it, friend, you have a heart hardened in evil. But this all happens on the inside. Nobody can see this. Christians, we like to look good on the outside, don't we? You and I, we all dress nice, come to church, put on our smiles and our pleasant trees. We're like the mom who is screaming violently at her kids and then answers the phone. Hello, this is Alice. Oh yeah, we're doing great. You've all been there. We only see what you want us to see. A believer can be dishonest and say that his conscience does not condemn him, but he has become hardened through his continuance in sin. Preacher J. Vernon McGee knew men in ministry who turned out to be dishonest charlatans, and yet at the same time, they prayed the most pious prayers that McGee had ever heard, and yet their consciences did not condemn them because they had been hardened. They had permitted sin in their life. We can't see it, but friends, God sees our hearts. God knows the sin we aren't repenting of. God knows the lust that you might be fighting right now that you are giving into. God knows the fantasies of a better spouse that you might indulge. God knows the bitterness and complaints you might be heaping up. God knows the anger and unforgiveness towards your relatives that you aren't dropping. Whatever your sin is right now that you're clinging to, whatever it is, God knows it. God knows it. Beware, friends. The heart is desperately sick. Who can know it? Sin deceives and hardens your heart. An evil, unbelieving heart will lead you to fall away from the living God. And if that be you, you will not enter God's rest. You will not enter heaven. So important is this warning that you and I in verse 13 are called to make combating sin and unbelief a team effort. A team effort. Lone ranger Christians become alone strangers to God. We need each other. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Exhort one another. This is a group effort. We are in this together. One of our roles as pastors and elders is to exhort you to forsake sin. Exactly what I'm doing right now. One of your roles as a Christian is to encourage other believers to walk in holiness, to walk in godliness. This word exhort one another comes from a Greek word that's hard to capture in English. It's one Greek word. A lot of translations render it, encourage one another. And the, the root of the word is to come alongside another person, to come alongside them. <clears throat> the emphasis here is on living in Christian community as Christ followers, with a Christ focus. As Christians, we can mess this up in two ways. We can choose to be that Lone Ranger Christian and reject being with the family of God, and that will surely spiral down into an evil, unbelieving heart. But the other mistake is equally dangerous. It's being together, but without a focus on Christ. And this is the free-range community where togetherness is the end goal instead of a means to an end. If Christ is not at the center of what the community says and does, that too will lead to hardness of heart. I know we can all think of many dead churches that have great community, but very little Christ. As Christians, we must live together. We must face sin together. We must exalt Christ together. We must work together to renounce an evil, unbelieving heart. And this text says, 
to do it every day. We're not just a Sunday morning community. We are a community of interwoven lives. Don't be a Sunday-only churchgoer, friends. You need a Christ-focused community every day. You need the love and friendship and iron sharpening that only comes when you are with other believers. God has designed the church to help us fight these two wrecking balls of faith, unchecked sin and unconquered unbelief. As Paul exhorted Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12, so I exhort you today, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. The church is here to help you. Friend, if you are struggling with sin or lacking faith, talk to me or Pastor Hans after the service. We are here for you. That's what the church is here for. Talk to a good Christian nearby. Don't wait for sin to deceive you and let you slip back in thinking that it's actually okay. Don't get comfortable in it. Team up with the church today and take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. Paul's not done. You need to fight sin lest you also fall. But thirdly, you need the other side of the coin. You need to firm up your faith with obedience. Point three there, firm up your faith with obedience. Look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Do you catch the paradox in that verse? Do you see the paradox in this spirit-inspired verse? The first half of the verse exudes the confidence of a true Calvinist. We have come to share in Christ. That we have come, it's perfect tense verb. That means it's a completed action in the past that still has effect on the present. At the moment of your salvation, you share in Christ. You participate in the blessings of the family of God. Heaven is yours. The Holy Spirit is yours. The brotherhood of Christ is yours. As Ephesians 1.13 says, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's a done deal, folks. Jesus has given us eternal life. As John 10 tells us, nobody is able to snatch us out of his hand or the Father's hand. Philippians 1.6 explains that he who began a good work in you has promised to complete it. We have come to share in Christ. Perfect tense. It happened in the past. It is still true today. Amen. But then there's the if clause in our verse. Sharing in Christ is true if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And here's the other side of the paradox in this verse. The believer is eternally secure unless he abandons the faith. This, if we hold firm, puts the onus on us. We must cling to Christ. We must not fall away from the living God. So which is it? Here we have the Calvinist and Arminian's positions both expressed in one verse. Are we eternally secure or must we actively cling to Christ? And the scripture is very clear. The answer is both. We are eternally secure. Nothing can snatch us from the Father's hand. What God has begun, he will complete. But we must also actively cling to Christ. 
we must hold firm to our original confidence. We must examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. We must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2, 12. We must be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election. 2 Peter 1, 10. What is this all saying, friends? That you can lose your salvation? No, absolutely not. What it is saying is that how you live may prove that you've never been saved in the first place. That how you live may prove you've never been saved in the first place. You see, if God has put his spirit in you, if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you will forsake sin. You will grow in godliness and you will persevere to the end. But if your faith is fake and not real, you do not have God's spirit in you and you will fall into sin and not recover. You will cease to grow in godliness and you will not persevere to the end. This was the author of Hebrews' fear for his Jewish Christian brothers and sisters in the Lord. That they, having shown all the initial evidences of genuine saving faith, would instead reject that original faith and turn back to the world. The fear was that the pressures of the Roman persecution and the pressures of the Jewish community would lead Jewish believers to abandon their faith and go back to the temple sacrifices and the safety of this recognized Jewish religion. And so the Holy Spirit exhorts these professing Christians saying, Jesus is better. And everything about what Jesus brings is better. Don't go back. Don't abandon the faith. Prove your faith is real by sticking to it in adversity and putting off sin. Friends, we need this charge too, so badly. The pressure from the world today is just as real and just as strong as it was then. The allure of sin today is just as real and just as strong, if not more so. The devil controls our culture. Satan is setting our standards. What God calls evil, man is calling good. Beyond that, this world is doing all it can to destroy the Christian faith. The world's media and scholarship, they've debunked, they've fact-checked the Christian's truth claims. Even so-called Christian universities and seminaries undermine belief by rejecting inerrancy of scriptures and advancing worldly agendas. Evil and causes for unbelief, friends, are stuffed down our throats from every angle. Dear friends, do not fall for them. Do not give in to these. Do not be deceived. If your heart is not fully satisfied in Christ, you will be restless. You may even abandon the faith you once proclaimed. If that be the case, you will go out from us to show that you were not really of us. 1 John 2.19 If you are a Christian, you will continue with us as a Christian, but if you are not, you will go out from us that it might become plain that you are not of us. Again, 1 John 2.19 The only conclusion we can have for Joshua Harris was that he was never saved. He went out from us, proving he was never of us. The wilderness Israelites never had saving faith. They abandoned God, proving they never truly believed God. So what must we do to confirm our calling, to make our election sure? Look back at Hebrews 3.15, the very next verse. He requotes his text by saying, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Verse 15, that's speaking to you right now, friends, today. That's right now. You may not have tomorrow. People die every day. Christ may come back tomorrow. 
Today is your day to decide. Today, if you hear his voice, friend, commit to him. Every day you wait is a day that you risk eternity in hell. Do not hear this message and say, oh, Pastor Stephen, I'm good. I got right with God years ago. Once saved, always saved. I know I'll be in heaven. Dear friend, do not say that. You may be right. You may be right, and I hope you are. I pray that you are. Or you may have a hardened heart, calloused by sin and doses of unbelief. Everyone, soften your heart today. Repent of any unconfessed sin and return fully to the God who loves you, who sent his son to die for you. He sent Christ for you. Cling to Christ. Look at the rest of our passage now, verses 16 to 19. Don't let this be you. Verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who were led, left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Did you catch the reasons for their damnation as we went through that? Verse 16, they heard truth, but rebelled. Verse 17, they provoked God by their sin. Verse 18, they were disobedient. Verse 19, sheer unbelief. Rebellion, sin, disobedience, and finally, unbelief. This is the path to apostasy, friends. An evil, unbelieving heart. And the Holy Spirit has given this passage and others like it as a spiritual litmus test for you to ask yourself, am I saved? We must make every effort to firm up our faith with obedience. Turn over to 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1. Today's passage is so bold and radical that I want to show you the same truth from another book of Scripture. You need to be convinced that this is the Bible's message everywhere, not just this one text or me misinterpreting this one text. First, 2 Peter 1, verses 5 to 11. In verses 3 and 4, Peter summarizes the great gospel promises we have in Christ, the great gospel promises. And then in verse 5, he says, for this very reason, 2 Peter 1, 5, for this very reason, in light of gospel promises, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Peter says, in light of your salvation, strive after these things. Now jump down to verse 10, where our key point lies. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You see here that Peter believes in election. Peter believes Calvin. I mean, he believes in election. Peter believes in election that God chooses people to be saved. And he calls on us as God's elect to confirm that election. Make sure you are elect. Be diligent to confirm, to make sure, to make certain that you are saved, that you are elect. And how do you do that? By practicing those qualities we just read, by shunning evil and unbelief. 
Peter says, put on faith, knowledge, steadfastness, all belief-related items. And he says, put on virtue, self-control, godliness, brotherly affection and love, all holiness-related items. If you want to put off sin and unbelief, put on holiness and faith. If you practice these qualities, what does Peter say? You will never fall. You will never fall. Now look at verse 11. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's the rest. There's the rest. Friends, there's so much more to say on this topic. Many things have been left unsaid for the sake of time. We will return to this topic next week as we venture into Hebrews 4. But as we close, I want to point you ahead to chapter 4 of Hebrews. I suppose that some of you have been cut to the quick by the word of God. I wager some of you have sinned to confess this very day, perhaps even unbelief, to forsake surrendering your life to the living God. Friend, if that be you, run to Jesus. Jesus knows. Jesus is able to sympathize with you today in your sin and in your unbelief. He came to this earth. He lived a perfect life without sin. And knowing all the sins that you would commit against him, he still went to that cross to die for you, to endure God's wrath so that you would not have to. And then he rose from the dead and is alive today as our great high priest. Has God's word pierced your soul today? Run to Jesus. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Beware a restless heart. Find your, your rest in Jesus. Father God, we love your holy word and it truly is a sword that pierces to the soul and spirit. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, Lord God. No change can take place if the Spirit does not move. So God, breathe life today into dead hearts. Fill us with your Spirit into crumbling hearts. God, may the heart in this room, weighed down by sin but full of you and dwelt by you, be filled up with the Spirit to confess and forsake sin. May we all make our calling and election sure today by rejecting sin, by putting on holiness, the holiness that without which none of us shall see you. Yes, the holiness of Christ is imputed to us. That is the only hope of salvation. We know we're not working our way into heaven, but we know we've been called. We know we've been set apart. We know the task you've given us, and we love you for it, God, that you have given us the ability by your spirit to be holy, to choose what's right, to walk with you. God, may none of us harden our hearts by the deceitfulness of sin and succumb to an evil, unbelieving heart. May your spirit fill us, drive us, move us, and give us incredible love and overflowing joy at the work that Christ has done. 
for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, help us to know this, believe it, and live it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.